Well, good morning, church. It's great to be here this morning with you. We hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Well, now we're back, and let's praise the Lord this morning. Amen. Let's put our hands together. Sing with me, God above. God above, put the world in motion. God above, all our hopes and fears. And I don't care what the world throws at me now. It's going to be. It's going to be all right. Hey. Hear the sounds. Hear the sounds of the generations. Making loud our freedom song. All in all that the world will know you're in. It's going to be all right because I know my God's in the day and I know His word never fails and I know my God made a way for me. Yeah. Salvation is Sing God above. God above, put the world in motion. God above, all our hopes and fears. And I don't care what the world throws at me now. It's gonna be alright, cause I know my God saved the day, and I know His word never fails, and I know. Salvation is here. Salvation is here. Salvation is here and He lives in me. Salvation is here. Salvation that dies to set me free. Salvation is here. Salvation is here and He lives in me. Salvation is here. Cause you are alive and you live in me Salvation is here Salvation is here and He lives in me Salvation is here Cause you are alive and you live in me Cause I know my God 
my mind I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me I see his wounds his hands his feet my Savior on that cursed tree his body, his body bound and drenched in tears. They laid him down in Joseph's tomb. The entrance seen by heavy stone. Messiah stood in all of Sing old praise this morning. Oh, praise the name of the Lord our God. Oh, praise his name forevermore. For endless days we will sing your praise. Oh, Lord, oh, Lord. Then on the third outbreak of dawn, the Son of Heaven rose again. Woe, trample death, where is your sting? The angels were for Christ the Shall pierce the night 
Let's sing that verse again this morning. He shall return. He shall return in robes of white. The blazing sun shall pierce the night. And I will rise among the saints. Our gaze, our gaze transfixed. On Jesus' face. And you 
Let's stand together for this last one. Let's put our hands together. Listen, we waited for this day. We waited for this day. We're gathered in your name, calling out to you. Your glory like a fire, awakening desire, burn our hearts with truth. You're the reason we're here. You're the reason we're singing. Open up. Open up the heavens. We want to see you open up the floodgates, a mighty river flowing from your heart, filling every part of our grave. Sing your presence. Your presence in this place, your glory on our face, look into the sky. You're standing with us now, Lord, unveil our eyes. You're the reason we're here. You're the reason we're singing. Come on. Open up the heavens. We want to see it. Open up the floodgates. The mighty river flowing from your heart. Filling every part of our praise. Let's sing that again. Open up the heavens, we want to see you. Open up the floodgates, the mighty river flowing from your heart. Feeling every part of our praise. Show us, show us your glory. Show us, show us your power.
Let's sing that again this morning, just a voice. Open up the heavens, we want to see you. Open up the floodgates, a mighty river flowing from your heart, filling every part of our praise. Open up. So open up the heavens, we want to see you. Open up the floodgates, a mighty river flowing from your heart, filling every part of our praise. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we thank you for these, these songs that we sing this morning, Lord, that we lay before you as sacrifices of praise, as an offering of worship this morning, God. We just lay it before your feet, Lord. We pray that these songs are like, were like incense, Lord, coming before your throne, Lord. You are so worthy of our praise, God, so we just, we just lay our lives before you. We, we place our hearts on the altar this morning, God. We just ask that your, your word like coals would just breathe into us, Lord, the, the love and the grace and the mercy that we know that you have, Lord, that is in your character. We love you, Lord. We just bestow this all upon your son's name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. Good morning, church. How y'all doing? Awesome, awesome. Couple of announcements for you, but before that, who's is anyone starting to grow any feathers on you from all that turkey you're eating? We're like on day three now, day four. Feeling it? We got a great thing for you this Wednesday. We're going to be doing a night of praise and worship, so make sure you come on out right here in this room in the fellowship hall. Amen. We'll be meeting at 7 p.m. Um, we look forward to see, seeing you guys and singing together and singing praises to the God who is worthy of all praise. So come on out. Join us here at 7 p.m. Uh, we hope to see you there. And then um, also the uh, Run to Rescue, the Stockings of Hope. This Tuesday is going to be the last day to be able to drop off your stockings if you have any. So if you do have one at home or you're, ready, you're still filling one in, make sure to drop it off here at the church uh, by Tuesday. Uh, 5 p.m. Is, is when the office closes, so uh, make sure to help out with that. They're, they're really excited. We've, we've got a good amount of them already, and, and I know that the girls are going to be blessed by it. Uh, they're always so appreciative of, of us kind of partnering with them and, and joining them on this. And, and again, we're just, uh, we're just trying to make these girls feel human again. The very primal, primitive thing we have is a feeling human, that they were created in the image of God, which they are. Uh, we want to help them in that. And even if it's just through a little stocking filled with necessities, um, we, should, we should be able to do that. So I again, join. if you want to join us in that, you still have time. Tuesday, December 1st, you can come drop them off. Uh, and then also the Naomi House Gift Drive. Uh, that tree is looking pretty bare out there, which is awesome. Thank you, guys. God bless you for that. Um, but I think there are still a few tags left to be grabbed. Um, you can still grab them. And the last day to drop off your wrapped gift will be Sunday, December 6th. So that's next week. Uh, so make sure to drop it off wrapped up with the original tag that you pulled. That way we know what gift it is and who it's going to. Uh, and then also, uh, for those of you who maybe don't have time to go out to a store, but you still want to help in maybe picking up those last gifts that weren't picked up, uh, you can go to our website and you can give online. You pull the little drop down down and there's the one for Naomi House. Uh, and whatever goes there, we'll put towards getting gifts for the kids who maybe didn't get a tag pull. So you can still help in that way, even if you can't make it out to a store, uh, that would be a great way for you to help. So again, the last day to drop those off is uh, Sunday, December 6th. Um, 
And then our, our Be Strong Take Heart shirts. I think there was a little bit of a delay last I heard. I'm not sure if the shirts are actually ready today. I know we said we we're going to have them. If they're not out there today, you can go talk to Sarah. They will be here next Sunday. So just keep an eye on that. For those of you who bought shirts a couple of weeks ago, um, she'll keep you informed on that. So with that, would you read with me for the last time this month our PowerPoint verse uh, out of Nahum 1.7? Read with me. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the days of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. Amen, amen. Do we have any first-time visitors? Would you raise your hand? We just want to say good morning. Awesome. It's good to have you. Praise God. Praise God. Well, with that, would you join me in welcoming Pastor Barry Stagner? Good morning. I assume by the chatter in the room this morning, everybody is well fed and had a great Thanksgiving. Uh, we did as a family. I know uh, we kept the limit to nine people because <laughs> that's all we have in the family. If we, if we would add 11, we'd add 11 seated around our table. But good to see you all here this morning. How many of you happened to catch the prophecy roundtable that I did yesterday with Amir? And uh, some of you did. Listen, if you don't know what the Great Reset is, you need to type it in your search engine and find out exactly what the plan of the globalist is in these days. How many of you have heard of the Great Reset? Uh, most of you. Wonderful. Well, yesterday, Amir played a little bit of a clip about their goals for 2030. Do you know that's only nine years from now? Their goals for 2030, their number one goal, you will not own anything and we'll be completely happy. You know what that means? You're going to live in government housing. You are not going to own your home anymore. The government is going to own your home. One of the other goals is that the United States will no longer be the world's superpower, but the world will be run by a small group of nations. I'm thinking 10. How about you? Listen, things are wrapping up quickly. Also this past week, those of you who watched yesterday, I mentioned the fact that Johns Hopkins University, one of the premier medical universities in the world, gave out a report this past week that said the fatality rate or the number of deaths in a calendar year in the United States of America has not increased at all. Every year, 1.7 million people die in the United States. From October of 2019 to October of 2020, you know how many people have died in the United States? 1.7 million people. Now, here's the interesting thing. All the primary causes of death in our country have decreased to the exact percentages of the number of deaths attributed to COVID-19. How about that? Amazingly, heart disease, which has been the number one killer in the United States and around the world, has dramatically decreased. While they have done things to increase our stress, which causes heart disease and fatality. So, listen, we're being sold a bill of goods. We don't diminish the fact that COVID-19 is real. People get it and people have died. And we need to be careful of the vulnerable in those age brackets, as I've said before. 
60% of the people that have died are over 75 years of age. Just like it is with the flu, we have vulnerable members of our society, those with pre-existing conditions. We need to be aware. We need to be careful. And if we're sick, don't go to church. Amen. Amen. That falls under the no-brainer category, right? <laughs> well, listen, there is so much going on in our world. I wanted to start with these things this morning just to remind you, what problem do you have that the rapture wouldn't solve? Yeah. I'm ready to go home. How about you? Now, I do want to say, as I always do, I'm ready to go home with all y'all. I'm not ready to go home on the individual plan. I want to go home on the group plan. Amen? Now, next Sunday is the first Sunday in December, so we're going to have a new PowerPoint. We're going to look at an entire chapter next Sunday, a whopping six verses from the prophet Isaiah, and our PowerPoint verse for December is this, Behold, God is my salvation. Listen, I will trust and not be afraid, for Yah, the Lord, that's an abbreviated form of Yahweh, the Lord, is my strength. And my song, he has also become my salvation. I think that's a pretty appropriate verse for December, don't you? Now, listen this morning. We're going to school today. That's why you came here, right? You came here to learn truth, to hear more about the Bible. Now, we're going to clear up some misinterpretations and some misconceptions. So, this is one of those messages, you got to listen to the whole thing. Don't check out halfway because I may say some things this morning that are going to conflict with much of what has been said in the church today. And there are things being said in the church today that are just flat out wrong. Amen? There are no new apostles. Hello? There are no equivalents to Peter, James, John, Bartholomew, the others. There are no new apostles. The Bible teaches no such thing. And therefore, those who laid claim to such a position are in error and leading people astray. Now, there are some other matters regarding interpretation of certain things that we see some people misinterpret, others just misappropriate. So we're going to clean some things up this morning. Are you ready? Yeah. Open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. We'll look at 15 to 29 and finish off this particular chapter this morning. And I don't think that we can underscore enough that the subject matter of Galatians, remember, it's been called a mini book of Romans. The subject matter of Galatians is so important that Paul, one, broke with his traditional form of writing. Remember, we found in verse one, or chapter one, rather, he did not pray for them or speak a blessing over them. He cut right to the chase and began to deal with the issue that was happening in Galatia. He dedicated the majority of the letter, five of six chapters, to the subject, and he uses the most aggressive language of any of the epistles in this particular letter because twice he calls the Galatians who were following the Judaizers foolish for doing so. He disputes the arguments of those who were demanding that Gentiles become Jews in order to become Christians. And last time we noted that he reached back 400 plus years before the law to make the case that Abraham was declared righteous by faith at a time where there was no law for him to obey. Now, in verse 11, he made this observation. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by what? Faith. faith. This is a quote from Habakkuk 2.4. And with this uh, quotation, Paul established that living by faith 
is an Old Testament principle, thus nullifying the argument that keeping the law is a prerequisite or a qualifier for being saved. Now, Paul is going to continue his systematic dismantling of the argument of the Judaizers by drawing a connection between Abraham and Christ. Who's the head of the church? Christ is the head of the church. Thus, he's drawing a connection between Abraham and the head of the church and therefore the church itself. He's also going to address, and we will as well, what the purpose of the law is, what the purpose of the law is not, and then he's going to address the argument that legalists like scribes and Pharisees had long been making, as well as the Judaizers who had come to Galatia, and that claim was this. In John 8, 37 to 45, Jesus said, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, speaking to the Pharisees, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, here's the claim of the Judaizers, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. In other words, you believe by faith. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to Jesus, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. And then Jesus, sensitive to the fact that he was hurting their feelings, said, you are of your father the devil. <laughs> now, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He still is today. He only comes to steal, kill, and destroy and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he, the devil, speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is a liar and the father of it because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. The Pharisees insult Jesus claiming he was illegitimately born instead of supernaturally conceived. They claim Abraham is their father. Jesus says, he's not your father. The evidence of your life shows that he's not your father. So they up their ante and say, well, actually, God is our father. And he says, well, no, he's not your father either. Your father is the devil. It's proven by the fact that you're incapable of accepting and believing his words. Now, to the Jews, ethnicity and adherence to the law was everything. And Paul was going to destroy, he's going to destroy their position in his address to the Galatians. And today, we have those for whom grace is everything. It's almost as though it's the only doctrine taught in the Bible. It's called the hyper-grace movement or the free grace movement, and it's something we need to be aware of and beware of. And their argument is there are no standards by which the Christian saved by grace needs to live. Their belief is actually called antinomianism, which means, by definition, no law. There is no law for us to comply to in the age of grace. And to them, as I said, grace is the primary doctrine of Scripture. But please note this. Now, tune in. Are you tuned in? Yes. Just checking. Jesus never taught on grace. There's no mention of grace on the Romans' road. The word charis, translated as grace or graciousness, is used 131 times in the New Testament. One time in Luke 
three times in John, never in Matthew or Mark. It's used 10 times in Acts and Romans 33 times as a salutation. 64 times it's used as an attribute of God. My point is this, if we're going to overemphasize any aspect of the gospel, it needs to be the blood of Jesus Christ which covers our sin. Amen? Now, again, we need to clarify some things because grace by definition, we'll talk about the Hebrew meaning this morning, but let me remind you that the word charis by definition, the translation is grace, but the definition is divine inspiration in the heart and its reflection in the life. In other words, we're going to be reflecting what Christ has done in our lives, and there has to be a measured or standard by which those things are accomplished. Now, we are saved by grace through faith, period. It is not of works, amen? Amen. And we're going to recognize the difference this morning between the ceremonial law of Moses and the moral standards of God contained in the Ten Suggestions. Now, the Ten what? The Ten Commandments. Now, we're also going to recognize that there is a New Testament relationship. Again, we're separating from the ceremonial law of Moses. There is a relationship between, and here's our title this morning, the law and grace. The law and grace. Now, Paul has said in every way possible that the law is not intended to save. There's no provision within the law for salvation. The law kills, is how Paul would put it in Romans. It convicts us all of sin, identifies us all as sinners. Amen? So, listen this morning. To say there is a New Testament relationship between the law and grace is not an infringement on the free gift of God that we have received as salvation because the law was never intended to save. So we have a lot to consider this morning, so let's jump in with verses 15 through 18. And again, I'm going to ask you to stay tuned to the whole message because we'll wrap it up with our third point and put a ribbon around what we're going to discuss on the way. So stand with me, please, and read from Galatians chapter 3, verses 15 through 18. Galatians 3, 15. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet it is confirmed and no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. And Lord, we are grateful this morning for the exceedingly great and precious promises that we have in Jesus Christ. And we thank you, Lord, for our salvation. We thank you for the giving and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for our time this morning. And I pray, God, that it emboldens us to live for you in a manner that's pleasing to you and passionate for lost and dying souls. So guide us through this uh, rather tremendous text this morning, we pray, for we need your help. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Now, Paul begins his treatise on the relationship of law and grace, not through the church age, but again, he reaches back prior to the law to establish that a covenant was made with one man, that man being 
Abraham and that the law that would follow 430 years later would not and could not annul or amend that covenant that was made by promise. Now, in Genesis 6-8, we have the introduction of grace into the Old Testament where we find in 6-8, Noah found what? Grace. grace in the eyes of the Lord. The Hebrew word there is ken, uh, C-H-E-N is how we'd spell it with uh, English characters. And this reminds us that grace not only predates the law, but it predates Abraham by over a thousand years. And the word in the Hebrew means to stoop to an inferior in kindness. That's where we get the phrase unmerited favor. It's an Old Testament principle and description of grace. This is what God did with Noah. This is what God did with Abraham when he singled him out and called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. He stooped to inferior humans to display his kindness. And Paul says this relationship with Abraham that the Jews and the Judaizers are always trying to establish is not the relationship that they claim it to be. He says, listen, the word seed is singular and thus it points to Christ. This is the seed of Abraham, the one who would come through Isaac and Jacob and therefore Israel, who would be the Christ, the son of the living God, the prophesied Mashiach ben David, the holy one of Israel. The seed is about Christ. It's not plural. Now, here's why this is important. It implies that the righteousness of Abraham through believing God was not ethnically transferred. In other words, it means just because you were born as a Jew, that doesn't mean you're saved. You still need the seed of Abraham in order to be saved. Jew, Greek, Gentile, whatever, you must be born again. Now, Paul goes on to say that since the relationship in Genesis is between Christ and Abraham, the law couldn't nullify it and thus make the promise given to Abraham of no effect. He then says, if what was inherited from Abraham came through the law, but he was not under the law, then the promise made to Abraham means nothing, and the just shall live by the law instead of by faith. And then he says, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Now, here's the first thing I hope that maybe realigns our thinking a bit and we'll discuss it more as we go, as I said. Did I mention you have to listen to the whole message? Yeah. You have to listen all the way through today. Listen, here's the first point regarding the relationship between law and grace, and this will be more developed as we go. Listen, the law and grace are companions, not contradictions. The law and grace are companions, not contradictions. They are distinct from one another, to be sure. Is the church under the law? No, we are not under the law. But we are under grace. That's what the Bible teaches. But as we will see in a moment, there is a continuing relationship that is crucial to one another and even to our salvation. Now, in 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 11, Paul says, but we know that the law is what? Good. If one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law is not made for the righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate for the ungodly and for sinners. How many have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? All. All have sinned. So the law is for everybody, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, manslayers, fornicators, sodomites, for kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and if there is any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Now remember what Paul 
would say to Timothy in his second letter in chapter 2, he would say the time would come when men would not endure what? He just said these things are part of teaching sound doctrine and they're not supposed to be a part of the Christian life and experience. And therefore, we need to make the distinction between the ceremonial law of Moses and the law of God. Now, the ceremonial laws are called the hukim or the uh, hukah. And it means the national customs or national statutes. And their purpose was to draw the followers of the law's attention to God through the sacrifices, through the ceremonies regarding uncleanness and their obvious implied filth or sinfulness uh, through the sacrifices and the blood covering necessary uh, to deal with those sins. The ceremonies and remembrances of God's work in and through Israel in the past was also celebrated through the feast and festivals, uh, circumcision, dietary restrictions, clothing restrictions were meant to distinguish the Israelites. Listen close. They were meant to distinguish the Israelites from pagan nations. While the Sabbath, Passover, and other feast days were pointing to the coming Messiah. Now, we are not bound to keep the ceremonial law. Amen. Amen. The law was fulfilled in Christ Jesus. Now, the church has not replaced the nation of Israel. And we'll talk about the law of God in a moment. But here's the point of the law-grace relationship. Grace predated the law. Right? We made that case. It goes all the way back to Noah. Grace predated the law. The law gave the Jews a way to express the grace they had received through the actions that identified they were God's chosen people and had a relationship with Him. The distinct ways of washing, the distinct manner of eating, were not meant to achieve anything for them personally. They were meant to identify them as the people of God nationally who had a special relationship with God. So, do we understand the ceremonial law of Moses and its purpose? Three of you are ready to move forward. What about the rest of you? Are you guys all ready to go? Let's keep moving. We can move forward with the understanding of the law-grace relationship that they are companions and not contradictions, even in the New Testament age, and find out how this applies to us today. So let's keep reading in 19 to 25. Paul goes on to say, What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? No. Certainly not. For if there had been a law given, there could have, been, uh, could have given life. Truly, righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Now, Paul addresses what was surely going to be the objections of the Judaizers who were falsely teaching that the Gentiles had to become Jews in order to become Christians. He said, if one is saved by faith and the relationship with Abraham was not as the Jews interpreted it, as some kind of ethnic transfer of righteousness, then what was the point of the law? Now in Romans 7, 7 to 12, he says this, 
What shall we say then? Is the law sin? He uses one of his favorite phrases. Certainly not. He says, now listen here. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the Are we all sinners? How do we know? Through the law. For I would have not known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. I was alive once without the law, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment, which was to bring life, I found to bring death. For sin, by taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it killed me. Therefore, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy. But that's not all. What else is it? It's just, and it is good. Now, in Romans, Paul is using the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God, as a means by which to highlight the goodness of the law, because it reveals that man needs a Savior. He says to the Galatians, the law was added so that man would see his need for the promised seed of Abraham, and that being who? Christ, Christ, the Messiah. Now, he mentions the angelic involvement in the giving of the law, Moses being the mediator he's referring to. And if you'd like to find examples of that, we don't need to read them all, but you can look at Deuteronomy 33.2, Psalm 68.17, Acts 7.53, and Hebrews 2.2. Later, if you'd like, please don't look them up during the rest of the message because you have to listen to the whole message today, right? (laughs) Now, Paul makes our previous point that the law and the promise are not adversaries, but they work in cooperation with one another to convict the man of sin and expose his need for a Savior. Now, he says then in verse 23, the law kept the Jews under guard. And then he illustrates the point by saying the law was a tutor, a pedagogos, a pedagogos, I'm sorry, which is the Greek word. It was a term used for a household slave who was responsible for the discipline of children who were prepubescent. Usually between the ages of five or six, it would be handed over to a household slave who would discipline them. Artist depictions of the tutor usually had them with a rod or a stick in their hand. They were disciplinarians. Now, remember that the ceremonial law also had within it consequences for violations which were meant to drive the disobedient to what? Change your direction? Discipline is meant to change your direction. What's the word for changing your direction? Repentance. Is repentance a New Testament principle? Well, of course it is. Now, but after faith came through the promised seed, the role of the ceremonial law had ceased. Now, here's where the distinction between the ceremonial law of the Jews and the moral law of God becomes important. Listen this morning. 1 Corinthians. Is the 1 Corinthians uh, part of the New Testament? I'm pretty sure it is. You guys are on it today. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? That's pretty clear, right? Needs no interpretation? Right? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such, next word, were some of you, oh, I'm glad for this next sentence, but you were washed in what? In the blood. 
You were washed in the blood of the Lamb, but you were sanctified, set apart from your former self and ways, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter 4, 1 to 3. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer, say no longer, he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lust of men, but in contrast for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime doing the will of the Gentiles. Somebody say amen to that. When we walked in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. Do you see anything about Sabbath or feast days there? No, there's nothing mentioned about the ceremonial law of Moses at all. All of these things are violations of the Ten Commandments that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians 6. They define unrighteousness. Peter says we shouldn't live like that. We spent enough of our time, we wasted enough of our life living in pursuit of those things. Now that we're saved by grace through faith, we ought to depart from the former things, is what Paul and Peter are saying. Are you still here? Now, the church has no relationship with the ceremonial law of Moses. And remember, the law of Moses had no provision within it that one could be saved by keeping it. So what was its purpose? To identify the chosen people of God from the pagans of the world. That was the point of the law, and to drive people to repentance when they disobeyed God's word, just like today, right? Right? Now, we see clearly through what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians and what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 4 that there is a role for the law of God in the New Testament age. The ceremonial law pointed to the promised seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, and the law of God points people today to their need for the promised seed of Abraham, who is Jesus Christ. So what is the relationship between the Christian saved by grace through faith and the Ten Commandments of God? It's exactly the same as it was for the Jews and the ceremonial law of Moses. Keeping it won't save us because we all break it, right? Keeping it won't save us, but it does identify us as God's chosen people saved by grace through faith in the promised seed of Abraham. Now, here's our point that we can draw this morning from this middle section. Listen this morning. Keeping the commandments of God won't save your soul, but it will save your heartache and shame. Amen? Isn't that the whole point? Keeping the commandments of God won't save your soul, but it will save you heartache and shame. This was true for Israel. It's true for the church. We also need to mention that obedience to the commandments of God is an identifier of one with a saved soul. There's too much evidence to deny that. In Scripture, Acts 5, 30 to 32 says, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Peter's not beating around the bush in this gospel sermon. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. So also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who do what? Obey him. Don't there have to be commands in order to obey? Now, Hebrews 3, 16 to 19 says, For who, having heard, rebelled? Indeed, was it not all who came out of Egypt led by Moses? Now, with whom was he angry 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned? Remember, we learned uh, two weeks ago, God is angry with the wicked every day. Right? Colossians 1, 21 and 22 says, Once we were 
enemies of God by wicked works? Was it not those who sinned, whose corpses fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not what? Obey. So we could see, so we see they could not enter in because of unbelief. Hebrews 5.9 says, And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to who? To all who obey. Now remember, obedience doesn't qualify us for salvation. It identifies us as the saved. And we live according to the word of God as best as possible with the aid of the Holy Spirit. Do we still mess up? Yes. Yep. Ask the person next to you what the worst sin is. If they No, don't do that. <laughs> We've all sinned, right? We've all messed up, but we aren't earning our salvation. It's still the free gift of God, but the law still has a role in pointing us to the things we need to repent of. Amen. Now, the relationship between disobedience and unbelief is mentioned in Hebrews 3. We also need to remember that as saints, we still sin. So we're not talking about the doctrine of perfectionism that some, very few, but some still teach that today, meaning that we can become sinless in this life. That's not going to happen. We're not going to become sinless in this life. But we should be able to say as Christians, I may not become sinless, but I am sinning less. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. Now, Romans 6, 12 to 14 Paul says this, therefore, do not let sin do what? Where? In your mortal body that you should obey its lust. And do not present your members, your body parts, as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. In other words, what he said in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that we are to dedicate our whole selves to serving God and prove what is that perfect and acceptable will of God. For sin shall not have dominion over you. Somebody say hallelujah, amen, or something. Sin does not have dominion over us, for you are not under law, but under what? Under grace. Listen this morning. Here's the point. No one's life has ever been made better by sin. No one's. No Christian's life has ever become a better example of Christ by sin. No marriage has ever been made better by adultery. No one caught stealing has ever been the better for it. No liar has ever become a better person through lying. And listen, we're not trying to earn salvation through obedience. It can't be done. Amen? It can't be done. But we are trying to do what Israel was supposed to do, and that is live in clear distinction from those who don't know Christ. Now, listen to what Deuteronomy said in 8.1. Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. You know what that means? That means obeying God is beneficial to us. It's a better way to live. It allows us to fully enjoy all that Christ died to give us and to make us. I want all God has for me, don't you? Yeah. And listen, I'm not going to put myself under the law and say I'm disqualified because I did something that violated God's law and I've lost my salvation. Jesus bought me with his own blood and the price for my sin has been fully paid. But I do want to live a life that shows I am distinct from those who don't know him. And I am not held captive by the things that capture the world. 
And listen, that's why I, I talk as frequently as I do, even though I am ashamed of my past. I talk about my past because I'm here to tell you, I'm free indeed. My sins are separated from me as far as the east is from the west. And what used to own me is no longer my master. Christ is my master, and I want to live for him. Now, we obey the commandments of God because it's pleasing to him. Every Christian, I believe, needs to know John 8, 29, where Jesus said, I always and only do that which pleases the Father. Are we not in Christ? Should we not try and live like Christ? Therefore, we ought to always and only do that which pleases who? Pleases the Father. Now, again, I cannot say this enough. We're not trying to earn salvation. That would negate the promise made to Abraham through his seed. But we do want to spare ourselves of pain and shame. Somebody say amen. amen. Now let's wrap it up with 26 to 29. You have to listen to the whole message. <laughs> For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus and... Does your Bible say and? No, well, that's because there is nothing to add to that. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to what? The promise made to Abraham that through his singular seed would come faith into uh, that would lead to salvation now let's do some doctrinal housekeeping real quick before we dig in this is a bit of a parenthesis in our time this morning some would say verse 27 implies that you have to be baptized in order to be saved is that true no. where does everybody go to refute that the thief on the was he baptized no and people say well you need more than that really why why Jesus never baptized anybody. Paul said, you know, and Jesus is the one I came to seek and save that which was lost. If he had to be baptized to be saved, Jesus would be dipping people in the river all day, every day, right? But he never baptized anybody. Paul said, you know, I baptized a few people. Can't remember who they were, but uh, that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to preach the gospel. Now, should we be baptized? Yes, it's one of the two New Testament ordinances that the Lord has given to the church. Be baptized and observe communion in remembrance of his broken body and blood. Now, being baptized is evidence of salvation. Now, listen close. But I don't think it's the baptism that we're thinking of. Listen, when you talk about the baptism of the Spirit and baptized by water, that's the same Greek word. So therefore, it can be referring to one or the other when you run across baptizo. Now, in Mark 1, 6 through 8, get this. Now, John was clothed with camel's hair and with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Yikes. <laughs> I'll take turkey and dressing over that any time. Amen? <clears throat> and he preached, saying, this is John the Baptist, obviously, there comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. Now, John says his baptism was a baptism of repentance. It's identified as such in Scripture. John says, I indeed baptized you with water, but he will what? Baptizo you with the Holy Spirit. Acts 1, 4 to 5. 
being assembled together with them, he, Jesus, commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John truly baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Galatians 3.27, as Paul said, as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. We could save ourselves a lot of interpretive gymnastics if we simply recognize that the baptism of Jesus is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And everyone who is born again is baptized in the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. Now, some like to teach what's called a second blessing or a separate baptism of the Holy Spirit. I don't know about you, but I need the Holy Spirit all the time. And when there is something that is going to require supernatural inspiration or power, He is going to come upon us in that moment to allow us to do whatever it is He has called and ordained for us to do. Now, some of you may be thinking, and I'm sure some are, what about the group in Acts 19 who... Uh, in Ephesus, where Paul said, you know, uh, do you know about the Holy Spirit? Oh, we haven't even heard that there is such a Holy Spirit. And he said, well, what baptism were you baptized into? And they said, the baptism of John. Now, therefore, what we need to remember is that Jesus told the disciples in Jerusalem before Pentecost what was going to happen. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then when Peter was confronted about what was going on, when people heard Uh, Galileans speaking in the native tongues of those who were in Jerusalem for the feast, Peter said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. In other words, Peter understood. Could you imagine having a Pentecost experience but not being told what's going to happen beforehand? You think you lost your mind, right? I'm going crazy. I'm going bonkers or something, whatever you want to use to describe it. And as soon as Paul told the group in Ephesus what the baptism of the Holy Spirit was, And what was going to happen? You know what happened to them? Same exact thing that happened on Pentecost. The Holy Spirit fell on them, and they spoke with tongues learned through a supernatural means. They were native tongues uh, of other humans. That's what the word tongues means. Glossa is the Greek term, and it means to speak in a known language. They were baptized in the Spirit. They knew what was coming because Paul explained it to them, and there were these exceptions to the general rule of being baptized in the Spirit at the moment of regeneration uh, during the early church age. Do we receive the Holy Spirit when we get saved? Absolutely. Do we need more power as we work our way through life? Power of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. I've always liked to picture it like this. I'm sure we have some Star Wars fans here. You wouldn't give a lightsaber to a two-year-old, right? They'd be lopping off the legs of the furniture and people's arms and everything else. So listen, as we're a novice Christian and we begin to grow, we begin to understand the power of God and its purposes. God is going to fill us up and he's going to keep filling us. Listen, he is an endless resource of power. We're never going to drain him dry, right? Now, Paul says, as sons of God by faith in Christ, baptized into Christ, then he says this, there are no ethnic life stations or gender preferences for you are all one in Christ And as Christ, you are heirs to the promise given to Abraham. Now, why would he make this particular statement? He would make this statement because we have to remember there were many male Jews who would pray, I thank you, God, that I was not born a Gentile or a woman. Can you imagine praying that? You know, people often talk about Christianity being misogynistic and all these other things. 
Jesus surrounded himself with women. Women are wonderful servants of God. Women are, as many have said, the engine of the church. They get things done, amen? And Jesus is the great equalizer, so to speak. Now, listen, this kind of thinking was eliminated by Paul's single statement, you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you're a slave in Christ or a free man in Christ, if you're a man in Christ or a woman in Christ, if you're a Gentile in Christ or a Jew in Christ, you're all in Christ and you're one family and we are one body. Isn't that a wonderful thing that we are one family here today? Now, we're violating the Thanksgiving limitations here, obviously, today because we've got more than 10, according to the king's edict. <laughs> now, Romans 9, 6 through 8 says, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children, because they are the seed, speaking of genetic descendants of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called, that is, those who are the children of the flesh. These are, what's the next word? Not the children of God, but the children of the promise. What's the promise? It's the promise made to Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him as righteousness. And through his seed, singular, faith would be born, and that would be the means by which we are saved. The children of the promise are counted as seed, meaning the descendants of Abraham are those who believe God by faith. That's all, y'all, in case you were wondering. <laughs> now, this is the proverbial final nail in the coffin of the Judaizers', Judaizers argument that Gentiles need to become Jews in order to be saved. Paul says, uh, hang on, not even all Jews are going to be saved. And you're looking at the wrong birth in making your interpretation. What did he say to Nicodemus in John 3? You're the teacher of Israel, and you didn't know you must be what? Born again. Born again. Listen, it's not the children who are physical descendants of Abraham who are saved to those who are spiritual descendants of Abraham who believe God and are in Christ that have righteousness placed in their account, whether they're a Jew or Gentile, whether they're a man or a woman, whether they are an employee or an employer would be the application in our day. Now, here's where we're going with all this. Does adherence to the law save us? No. Hello? You guys over here want to get in on this? Does adherence to the law save us? No, but here's what we do need to understand about the law-grace relationship in the New Testament age. The law is what makes grace so amazing. The law is what makes grace so amazing. We run down the checklist of the law, and we would all say, oh, yeah, did that. Oh, did that one too. Whoo, did that one a lot. And then we get to the bottom of the list, and we find the blood of Jesus and say, still saved by his work on my behalf. Now, Romans 10, 5 to 13 says, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. We talked about this two weeks ago. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring up Christ from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of what? Faith. Faith, not works, which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus. Remember, confess means to see of or speak of as the same. If you believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is. 
and you make that confession with your mouth and believe where? In your heart to believe in sincerity that God has raised him from the dead, thus proving he was God in human flesh, you will be saved. saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Listen, there are no secret service agents in the kingdom of God. What happens in the heart makes it through the lips and past the teeth, and we speak and confess that Christ is Savior and Lord to those who want to hear it and to those who don't. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord overall is rich to all who call upon his name. Here's one of the greatest statements in the history of humanity. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, think about this in conclusion. If whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, what are they being saved from? And if they're being saved from something as a radical and eternal separation from God and hell, wouldn't there have to be a reason for them to be going there in the first place? Wouldn't the God of all truth and righteousness identify why apart from Christ no one can be saved? Wouldn't that therefore require sin being defined so someone could say, yeah, I did those things, yep, I need a Savior. And this is why the universalists of our day are such a dangerous and deceitful group. They say everybody's going to heaven because God is love and hell is a disproportionate response to rejecting Christ as Savior and Lord. Well, I'm sorry, those who say such things are not God. I'm going to stick with His book. Yeah. Amen? Yeah. Now, if that's true, if everybody goes to heaven, because hell is a disproportionate response to rejecting Christ as Savior, then why send Christ to the cross at all? Right. What's the point? Why not just save everybody? Why not just speak it? into existence. If God can speak everything that we see and experience today in six night-day cycles, then he could certainly speak over humanity and say, okay, everybody come home. Everybody be saved. Couldn't he do that? Why then even make a promise to Abraham? Why say, in your singular seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed? Why give the law on Mount Sinai to Moses? Why discipline those who disobeyed the law? Why would the disciples who walked with Jesus be martyred for what they believed? Why would God allow hundreds of millions of his faithful followers and those who were identified him ethnically, that being the Jews, be slaughtered year after year? Do you know that the 20th century was the most deadly century in church history? There were more Christians killed in the 20th century than the previous 19 centuries combined. Now, why would God allow that? Well, because it's a testimony to the saving power of the blood of Jesus Christ and the belief that the second death has no power over us. And I've told you before, I'll say it again, and we need to keep this in our mind constantly. There is no martyr who is in heaven today who wishes they were back on earth. I don't think there's anybody who wanted to be a martyr. But I do believe there are those who say, you know what, I'll be a martyr before I'll deny Jesus, before I'll deny Christ. You know what that means? That means this is real. We don't die for nothing. Nobody just dies for a cause that has no foundation behind it. And listen, are we under the law? No. 
No, 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 no. But listen, it plays the same role now that it always has. It tells people they need a Savior, and those who live by the law of God aren't saved because of that, but they do please Him, and they will be blessed because of it. You see, law and grace are not incompatible if you define them properly. The law can't save you, but it makes grace all the more amazing. Somebody say amen. And Father, we are grateful for your word this morning. Thank you uh, that Paul was so moved and was so even aggressive in his stance with the Galatians because what they were being taught was dangerous to them, and therefore it's dangerous to us. So we thank you for this clarity. We thank you for Ephesians 2.8, that we are not saved by works, but that you have given your son as a gift that through his blood poured out on a cross, fulfilling Leviticus 17.11, atoning mankind by the, the blood of your own son, that we could by faith receive salvation as a gift. And we are so, so thankful for that. But thank you, Lord, you also told us what qualifies us as one in need of a Savior, that we've sinned and therefore you've written down your statutes and commandments that we can measure our life against it and you and find that we fall short of your glory. So thank you, Lord, that you are willing to save. Thank you, Lord, that you're still saving today. And listen, this morning, if you're not ready for heaven and you have not yet been born again, you need to be born again and you need to be born again today. Now, the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Listen, if you think good moral people are going to heaven, there's one problem. The Bible says there are no good moral people. There is none who does good, no, not one. James says if you offend in one point of the law, you are therefore identified as a lawbreaker, a sinner, and therefore you need a Savior. Even if your sin numbers only one, which is not true of any human being who's ever lived, but you need a Savior. You need Christ and His blood to redeem you and reconcile you back from your former self and put you into a right relationship with God, sanctified, set apart from what you used to be and now enabled by the Spirit to live for Him. And listen, this is one of the greatest evidences of the work of salvation in our day today. It takes somebody like me who was a violent and vile drunk and cleans them up. And God, even in His majestic and unbelievable mercy let someone like me preach his word that's the business God is in he separated me from my former self and he'll do the same for you and if you don't have that point in time where you know that God has cleansed you from all unrighteousness covered your sin in the blood of his own son and you watched in the mirror that person that stands there begin to change and begin to reflect Christ you need to have that moment today listen you can't earn it nobody ever has there is nobody that's good enough to go to heaven on their own merit. You need a Savior. And that Savior we've identified clearly today as Abraham's seed, the prophesied one, the Holy One of Israel, the Messiah of the Jews and the church, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and that is Jesus Christ. And only through him can you be saved. And listen, he is offering that to you today for free. He's not saying, clean up your act and I'll save you. He's saying, save you, and we'll work together on your act. So if you want to be born again this morning and you're not sure that you are, I'm just going to ask you to lift up your hand and say, you know what? I want what God has for me. I believe 
in the word of God, and I want to accept him as Savior and Lord today. Don't let this moment get by. Lift your hand up high where I can see it if you're here today. I want to pray for you before we go. I'm not going to ask you to stand and sing or do anything else because this is a work between you and God. He may have already done the work in you through his spoken word today, but I just don't want to let this moment get by. Anybody here today? Just lift up your hand. God bless you. Father, we are grateful, Lord, for your saving work today. We thank you, Lord, that you have completed that which was necessary to purchase our souls back when we were like the Pharisees, when our father, in that figurative sense, was the devil, and we were serving him, and we were following after the ways of the Gentiles like Peter wrote. But thank you that you take those who Paul wrote of in 1 Corinthians 6, and you wash them, and you sanctify them, and you justify them. And we thank you for that work that you're doing here even today in this one who has lifted their hands to you. So we're grateful for you today. We thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ. And thank you, Lord, that <clears throat> there's none who are so far that they cannot be reached. And we thank you, Lord, that you told us that without you, there's no hope of heaven. But through you, the hope of heaven is not only ours, but so is the changed life and a life of living to please and follow after you. So we thank you for what you've done today. And Lord, help us to go out now and tell others. In a time where people don't want to hear it, in a time where we are far outnumbered, Lord, may we all as the church remember this is how you like to operate, with the Gideon's army, with the remnant, with the few to reach the masses. So help us to be bold and strong, to stand up and speak, and as we learned last week, to be brave in this uh, perilous time in which we now live. We thank you again for your matchless word. Thank you for teaching us today about the role of the law in pointing us to your grace. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said together, Amen. Amen. Man, I like being a Christian, don't you? God is good. And he continues to be good. You know, I, I just can't imagine making your way through these particular times without Jesus. But we're not without him. And he told his disciples, I'm not going to leave you as orphans. Don't worry about it. I may not be physically present with you anymore, but I'm going to send you a helper who's just like me. Another of the same kind. Another helper is what the phrase Jesus used there in John 14. You know what he said about the Holy Spirit? He said he'll teach you all things. Call to remembrance the things that I taught you. He's going to come upon you. He's going to empower you. Listen, we've got a world to reach out there. And now we've got a scared world to reach out there. So we need to be talking to people about Jesus today. Just like always, right? But, you know, I tell you, people are, are wanting hope because we're in a hopeless world. And who are the messengers of hope in the world today? I mean, who has a real hope? Uh, not a, a turnabout in the economy. We need something better than that, right? We need a great awakening. People need to come to Jesus. Now, who's going to go tell them that? Politicians? <laughs> no, they're part of the mission field. We need to go tell some of them about Jesus. Hey, thank the Lord we have Christian politicians, real born-again politicians, amen? But we need more of them. We need more garden variety men on the street Christians too. 
people need Jesus because he's coming soon, maybe even today. So let's keep looking up. Our redemption is nigh. And as we look up, let's reach out and tell people about Jesus. Amen? Amen. Would you all stand this morning?
say in your mighty name, O King of Heaven, come. O King of Heaven, come. King of Heaven, come. King of Sing King of Heaven. King of Heaven, come down. King of Heaven, come now. Let your glory reign, shining like the day. King of Heaven, come. Amen. God bless you, church. We'll see you next time.